you are listening to Kubernetes Bytes, a podcast bringing you the latest from the world of cloud-native data management. My name is Ryan Walner, and I'm joined by Bob and Shaw, coming to you from Boston, Massachusetts. We'll be sharing our thoughts on recent cloud-native news and talking to industry experts about their experiences and challenges managing the wealth of data in today's cloud-native ecosystem. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. And we are coming to you from Boston, Massachusetts. Today is January 8th, 2024. Uh, Hope everyone is doing well and staying safe. Let's dive into it. Happy New Year, everyone. Uh, Kubernetes Bytes is back. Uh, So we just finished season three with an AIML intro or 101 episode. Hope you guys like that. And we are excited to jump into the season four or 2024 season with an exciting episode with a Kubernetes user. Uh, uh, so uh, before we actually go into the topic for today and introduce our guest, let's talk about what's going on with the cloud native ecosystem. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Recently, I know we were off for like a few weeks, so there are uh, we do have a lot of exciting news to cover. Uh, let's start by talking about some funding rounds and some acquisitions. Uh, talking about funding rounds, Aqua Security, the Kubernetes security vendor with their open source project Trivi, uh, raised an additional $60 million funding for a total of $325 million raised uh, through their lifetime. Uh, this looks like an extension series e-round based on their website and Crunchbase's site, uh, which basically like helped them maintain their valuation over a billion dollars. So uh, congrats for still being a unicorn Aqua uh, Aquarians. Is that what they call them? I don't know, but congrats Aqua Security. Uh, next up, we have uh, Docker uh, buys a, a small uh, startup called Atomic Jar to integrate their container-based test automation tools, uh, specifically something called as the test container projects. Uh, test container projects are open source, multi-language library for providing throwaway lightweight instances of database, message queues, uh, web browsers, anything that you can package in a container, they can deliver it to you too for your test dev workflows. Uh, so go and check that out. We'll have a link for it in the show notes. They didn't say how much uh, the acquisition was for uh, or how many uh, people will join the team, but like looks like the entire Atomic Jar team will now be part of Docker as well, uh, including all of their open source projects and efforts. Next up, in terms of acquisitions, uh, Harness.io, uh, a, a, a key player in the continuous delivery ecosystem, uh, buys another CD uh, startup called Armory. Uh, so Armory, uh, and looks like they bought it for like $7 million based on business insider information. Uh, Armory had raised more than $80 million. So it's sad that now they had to sell themselves for $7 million. But hey, like the technology is still, ar- still around. I'm hoping the people at Armory still have a job. So um well that's that's the way to get an exit i guess uh, but yeah harness adds to its uh tool chest uh or war chest <laughs> uh, and add more more tools to its ecosystem next up uh talking about a funding round uh scale ops uh a, a, a very small startup i think based out of israel raises 15 million dollars in series a round bringing the total money raised to 21.5 million dollars 
Uh, and scale ops, as the name suggests, helps organizations scale their Kubernetes deployments, Kubernetes clusters, uh, and do that cost effectively, right? So based on their website, it looks like they do dynamic pod uh, resizing for compute uh, and memory. Also, uh, your CPU and memory requests and limits, but they do that dynamically instead of having you to uh, have uh, instead of asking the user to update those limits every time. They also optimize the nodes that are part of your Kubernetes cluster. So I'm sure I'm like look thinking about this as an offering that works for public cloud or managed Kubernetes platforms to begin with. Uh, so in in terms of node optimizations, they help by removing underprovisioned nodes. So if your nodes are not utilized fully. It'll remove those nodes by moving the pods that were running on those under underutilized nodes to uh, different other nodes in the clusters. They also help you by replacing expensive nodes that you might, your developers might have asked for by cheaper ones just because they know how much capacity both from a compute memory and storage is actually needed by your workloads uh, and then it also consolidates pods for more efficient compute utilization so looks like they're mostly focused on compute again uh, it, i won't say that they are the first vendor in the ecosystem but definitely like bringing more light to this space right where uh, given the market that we are in right now given that all the zerp or zero interest rate projects are kind of done for a year, almost a year. Uh, this will help organizations uh, maintain their Kubernetes environments and do so cost effectively, right? Uh, next up, we have another acquisition. I know it's been a busy three weeks, like who would have thought uh, over Christmas and New Year breaks or over holidays, we'll see a lot of funding rounds and, and acquisitions. But uh, this one is a big one. Uh, Cisco actually acquires uh, isovalent so isovalent uh, if you don't know which is uh, which will be weird but they are the the company behind the cilium project the tetragon project they do a lot of good things in the cni ecosystem the ebpf ecosystems uh, are now part of cisco securities business group the acquisition again it, the, the intent to acquire was announced i think the acquisition is supposed to complete in like third quarter of this year uh, no price was actually being shared but looking at the history right isovalent had raised uh, 69 million dollars through its series a and series b and um, importantly cisco was already part of both of these uh, uh, funding rounds uh, and again cisco specifically i'm talking about the venture arm that they have so cisco had already invested in isolent isovalent over the couple of rounds uh, Personally, I think this is a great move, right? Cisco, uh, I've worked on Cisco switches, Cisco Nexus and iOS switches in the past, uh, and I've seen how um, widely used they are. This just means that, okay, with Cilium being that open source project and Cilium has, how it has become the default CNI plugin for EKS and AKS and GKE, uh, this helps Cisco, <laughs> I don't know, at least uh, maintain their presence even in, in this cloud native ecosystem, right? So great move by Cisco. Congrats to everyone at ISOVALEN. Uh, you have a new home now. Uh, one last news that's not related to acquisitions or funding rounds. Uh, we have uh, Kubernetes 1.29 went out. I think it, somewhere in mid-December, it was after we, we published our uh, AIML episode. So we didn't cover it then, but yeah, it, it's GA for everyone to use. That was the last release of 2023, just in time, right? Because if they pushed anything in, during Christmas, I don't think that might have been picked up as well. Uh, this is a, a good stable release, 49 enhancements. 
uh, 11 of those features moved to stable 19 graduated to beta and 19 uh, sorry and yeah 19 graduated to beta and 19 to alpha sorry i was looking at my notes here uh, a couple of things that caught my eye from the stable announcements or uh, the stable enhancements uh, read write once pod which was in beta till now is now a stable feature so if you are using uh, persistent volumes of data on Kubernetes, you know that the access modes are read write once, read write many. Uh, now we have read write once pod. This is, again, the way to differentiate this is if you're using read write once, you would think that only one pod will have access to that specific uh, persistent volume, but read write once actually gave or could give access to all the pods running on one node in your Kubernetes cluster access to that persistent volume. So this I guess restricts it even further. Now it makes it retried once pods. So only one pod can have access to uh, a volume at one time. So go look at it uh, if that's something that you're interested in. Uh, and then second thing that caught my eye was KMS V2 encryption at rest is available uh, for all Kubernetes resources in your cluster. So a reliable solution uh, to encrypt all resources. Uh, I'll, we'll have a link in the show notes that talks about how, how to do that. Uh, again, this feature has been around. Uh, KMS V1 was around for a while. KMS V2 has been in beta for a while. This is now just general, being generally available. Uh, that's it for news uh, for this episode. I know we had a few articles uh, and announcements. But let me uh, move to the next step and talk about uh, our guest for today, right? So we have uh, Ahmad. Uh, Bebars, uh, hopefully, sorry, Ahmad, if I butchered your last name, uh, but he's a staff software engineer working for the New York Times. So as part of season four, we want to strive towards getting more and more of these user stories. Uh, I know we, each season we move from like doing more one-on-one episodes to bringing on more vendors and startup founders to talk about what's new and exciting. This year, we also want to focus on getting more user perspectives. The feedback that we got after the Chick-fil-A episode that we did last year and the Major League Baseball episode that we did last year was uh, exciting the, to, just to summarize it in a in, in a single word uh, so we will strive to get more and more users using kubernetes on a day-to-day -day basis uh, to join us for a pod episode and talk about their experience so if you are one of those users please reach out to us we would love to have you on the episode again doesn't matter if you are like a new york times or a major league baseball even if you are like a 10 percent team and you're using Kubernetes, we would love to hear from you and make sure and have you share your experiences with the rest of our listeners. Uh, okay, so without further ado, let's bring Ahmed on. Hey, Ahmed, uh, welcome to Kubernetes Bytes podcast. Happy New Year, and thank you for joining us. Uh, why don't we start with like a quick introduction of who you are, what you do at New York Times, and then, then we can kick off the official episode. Sure. Uh, first of all, Happy New Year to you. And uh, thanks for having me. I'm really excited about talking about Kubernetes and what are we doing at the New York Times. So my name is Ahmed Bebars. Uh, I'm a so staff software engineer at the New York Times, specifically in delivery engineering. And mm -hmm. our focus is to like maintain and build like core infrastructure and develop a centralized platform for our product engineering team to help them with their uh, building their applications, services, and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, and I work with multiple teams inside the organization from like CICD, Kubernetes, uh, uh, so like CDNs and other things. Okay, awesome. That, so do you, is it just one team that supports all product engineering teams inside the New York Times or do you have like multiple teams supporting different organizations? So it, it will depend on each 
Yeah, so like we are in missions and like depending on like what does your goal look like. So in delivery engineering, we have multiple teams mm -hmm. are specifically to uh, different areas like CICD. We have my team is like uh, working on like Kubernetes, but like I also work with the CDN team and doing like all of the service delivery or the traffic delivery. And then like the teams are responsible for resources provisioning and like all of the cloud stuff. Gotcha. And then we have teams for developer experience. So it's, it's really like an organization that tries to centralize the entire process and building a central platform to make it like more standard and also like avoid, you know, any kind of productivity uh, cut from like, I'm trying to maintain my infrastructure. I'm trying to do this, things yeah. like that. Okay. Okay. Uh, that's good. Right. So let's start with basics. Uh, I know you are on the Kubernetes Bytes podcast. So like, let's start by talking about when and why did you and New York Times cho choose to go down the containers and Kubernetes route? How was that decision made and what are some of the benefits that you see? Yeah, uh, so I've been with the Times for about five years now. Uh, I can talk. I cannot <laughs> talk before that. But yeah. like, my understanding is like a lot of teams are using Kubernetes even like we before we started like a central platform. But, like okay. you can imagine like I I'm a team, I'm building my own clusters and I'm running my own things. And another team doing that and like, every team is doing whatever they feel it's empowered to deliver their services because that's we need uh, to have. So the mm -hmm. other thing is like when we started like our journey to like make things centralized and build a platform that like makes life easier to mm -hmm. every engineer and makes just the process smoother, we thought about like what is the right tool that we can build containers on? Uh, or even before containers, like what is the right tool to ship runtime? And like with all of the ecosystem and uh, we're seeing like Kubernetes happening and all of the kind of work in there, we thought like Kubernetes could be a good tool since it's open source, it's more like cloud agnostic, mm -hmm. it sets in all of the cloud providers and you can do it on-premise if you need to. Uh, so that's where like we decided about like maybe like two years ago when we started to think about the platform or the central platform, that's the tools that we're going to build the platform on top. Okay. No, I think that makes sense, right? And that's what we see in the community as well. Like instead of having developers or individual application teams reinvent the wheel and try to do everything on their own, having like larger organizations that can obviously afford to have a centralized platform team going down the route. We also have like a fancy term called platform engineering that kind of is that umbrella term that covers all of these things. So I, I guess my question to you, next question to you is about like when you started this journey at the Times, right? Did you start with some open source project to build your IDP or internal developer platform? Or do you have, did you end up building something that's more custom to you, uh, that's more proprietary to the Times? That's a, that's a very good question. So like with every platform, you're trying to not reinvent the wheel. So you're yeah. trying to see what's available in the market and then like what's happening and then like you customize on top of it. Yeah. So when we started, we saw like Kubernetes, it's going to be the good tool for doing that. So what other components that we are looking for? And looking at the open source, uh, we were already like doing like some stuff specifically on EKS. So, but then we were looking into what other things that we can use. So we needed like, for example, like network isolation. So we need like network policy and all of that kind of stuff. While Kubernetes provides some of these, but we need something that we can, because we are running a multi-tenant architecture. Yeah. That's where was our decision. So we decided like, Cilium is a good approach. There are a couple products, but we decided to go with Cilium. So another thing we need to ensure is that all of the policies and everything is intact. So we have governance and all of the kind of stuff. So gatekeepers come to the mix. 
then later through the process, we were thinking about service mesh. So Istio came to the process, and then we started using it. Then we started to use cluster autoscaler, but things change a bit, and like we started to look at Carpenter. But these are all open source tools that we're using. Yeah. However, there are some other things that we are building in-house. So for example, like we try to automate the process of how to onboard teams and accounts to our Kubernetes cluster. So we built like a controller that like based on some triggers that does like when an event happen, let's mm -hmm. from there, start build the CRD, all of the kind of stuff. So we have some controllers that we built in, in the platform yeah. to help us with the process, but we try to rely more on like a lot of open source tools so we can like ship things faster and also have the ability to contribute upstream and we don't have to, you know, recode everything. Yeah, that, yeah. Uh, so that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So you already described a lot of your tech stack today. Uh, I know you said you use EKS as a distribution. Is is uh, times all focused on AWS EKS or are you also like multi-cloud? Uh, like it, it really depends. Like this is not... Uh, uh, an area like where like we would think this way, I believe that was the way that I would think of it. Like when we decided to like where we were gonna build the platform, yeah. we have some uh, thoughts about like where it's gonna be, and I think like we decided then like going building the platform on top of AWS for now okay. because that's that's EKS yeah. provide us with the tools. But like at, at any point of time, you know, you can you can be a multi cloud. But I think it's an investment that you have to yeah. make and decisions that you would make to. Ensure, like, do we really need it or not? Mm -hmm. Like, how we would do that? Uh, there are always a say that, like, things are cloud agnostic, but, like, come to a point where, like, you have to change providers, you have to change a lot of things. So it's yeah. not, like, an easy decision uh, yeah. to go for. Uh, but I think for now, like, we are we are using EKS as uh, uh, Kubernetes uh, distribution for the platform. And, yeah, I agree. Like, there is going to be lock-in at some layer of the stack. Like, you can't be completely vendor agnostic. That will be basically saying you're building everything in-house and exactly that, yeah it's yeah. not worth the the juice is not worth the squeeze i guess uh, so talking more about your platform right uh, you said you support a lot of application teams uh, do you have like so the reason i'm asking this is i've used backstage a bit and seen tools that are built on top of backstage uh, and it has a nice user interface that developers can use to select these apps or select these golden parts uh, to get started uh, does something similar exist inside your platform that you have built or is it, I've also seen scenarios where people, developers are used to using just uh, Kubernetes CRDs. So once you have clusters for them, they, they can uh, create the right CRDs and, and get access to what they need. Uh, which way are you leaning? Okay, so well, I, I can tell you like my opinion and I can tell you what are we doing. So okay. like, first of all, what are we doing? So I think like the main important piece here is like we do, we think about like the productivity and the developer experience. So yeah. like, while I can, I can give you all of the tools uh, to do whatever you need, it's going to be like super uh, less opinionated and all of that kind of stuff. I still didn't get you like that easy, quick, golden bath way. I'm, I'm just like having a bunch of tools uh, compiled together and, and say, hey, these are the tools that you can use. So I think like to take a step back, we thought about the platform in mm -hmm. a workflow way. So like, gotcha. what are you trying to do? Like I'm trying to onboard. So like if you are trying to onboard, you like you go to a form, you go to our interface and that's gonna onboard you. What is this onboarding gonna do is gonna create like a few things for you. So now I'm trying to choose container runtime. Like this is gonna be Kubernetes at the moment. So yep. what else? So if I describe the entire flow for you, it's the first step is onboarding. 
and then develop. The onboarding step, it's exactly what it, what you meant about interface and mm-hmm. user enter some information. Like I need to use that. I need to uh, use this CI. I need to use Argo. Uh, what's my service look like? Uh, yeah. I'm exposing it public or not? And then like this uh, templating engine will create all of the resources from like a get repo, like okay. all of the templates that you need from like customize or Helm, wherever all of this look like. And then there are a few CRDs that we're talking about here. Like uh, maybe we have a CRD for our traffic management. Mm-hmm. That's something we built uh, that will get templated for you based on the information. Okay. So from start to end, like when you set up, like when you enter your information for the service that you are trying to deploy till you get to production, we're talking about like 10 minutes to okay. get there nice. at okay. least with a, a template. Like yeah. we say, go. And then you get like a HTTP server, for example, and that helps you to not think about how I would do a lot of things, but like all of these are shipped out and then you can customize and build on top of it. Okay. So as part of the onboarding workflow, right, when they request for a certain amount of resources, like, is it such that like, do you have like a huge Kubernetes or EKS cluster and developers get their own namespace for that multi-tenant environment or do you have like a cluster as a service or a cluster vending machine where every developer gets their own small three node, four node cluster based on what they want to do? Yeah, uh, very good question. I spoke about this in large in multiple uh, talks that I have done, but we decided to go with the multi-tenant approach. Okay. So we have like specific clusters cross environments, cross regions that like we deploy people, we deploy like uh, applications to them. Gotcha. So. You, you can get more than one namespace. It's something that we already provide out of the box. But like when we onboard you as a tenant or as mm-hmm. an, like an entire account, we give you a, a default namespace with everything that is a controller that I spoke about earlier. You get like your network policies, you get like your SEO gateways, you get all of the stuff that you want to get out mm-hmm. of the box. Even if you are not onboarding through the platform, you still can use Kubernetes out of the box within the setup that we have. But if you take it to the other end and you use the the platform as a whole you yeah. get the whole uh experience from that but we also know that not one size fits all so we have like few use cases where like i need multiple namespaces so the same controller you just like write a small crd and you mm-hmm. get the new namespace with all of the default values that we have so okay. basically it's a multi-region multi-tenant uh like different nodes and all of the kind of stuff are combined together and we're thinking about like different also like i I have to be honest we are still like early in the journey so things may change you may we've been thinking about like what if we need to this like dispense one cluster Mm -hmm. for a specific need how how are we going to do that or how things like this would be done okay no i think that was a good description right uh of how you handle multi-tenancy that leads me to the next question like okay how do you like if if you are maintaining your own platform and a huge cluster how do you do day zero day two operations like day zero might be okay you deployed that huge cluster for once and everything is set up what about day two how do you handle uh kubernetes version upgrades or ami upgrades how and are these disruptive non-disruptive transparent to the developer uh can you talk more about that please yeah uh this is uh, like this has been a a, a problem in general yeah. the community at has been thinking about like yep. how how you do like should I do like blue green should I do in place what yeah. kind of tools so it really depends on like what are we changing like but to be fair we are trying to be like uh like honest and transparent about how we do upgrades so like when we try to do any like 
things that we think that might hit any issue yeah. we are always like say we always like keep everyone posted hey we are upgrading this from this version to this version just to, like if you see anything but like we have mm, more than one environment to test things at okay so, like, we yeah. don't ship things to production directly it's just like you know uh, just normal sdls ldsc sdlc software <laughs> life cycle nice. uh and then like we have a pre-environment that no one has access that we test stuff on and then like we ship it you know uh, iteratively to go to the right place uh so we try to handle this but like there are some stuff that for example like one of the things that i'm 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 really happy with how the community think about for example like uh carpenter uh, yeah. is the approach that Carpenter is using for upgrading AMIs is really nice because like we don't say uh, we need that specific AMI, but we basically say get the latest, for example. And then okay. we have like our setup to expire nodes every certain amount. So that gets us like a new node. Oh, that's awesome. Wow. Yeah. So we don't have to maintain like uh, all all the you know the batching and all of the kind of stuff when we have long time uh, node. Uh, from the other hand, when we talk about control plane for uh, EKS specifically, yep. like that's that, managed. you know that that's done by AWS. So yep. like we just patch it, and then I think that they keep adding more features about uh, compatibility and other things. But we have to do all of our due diligence from a perspective of, like someone using uh, HPE like v1 beta for example and then like you know v2 came yeah. up and like then things start to break and all of that kind of stuff uh but yeah we do we we prefer to do like some in place upgrade and that's also having the multi-regional stuff helps because we not necessarily ship to every region we start like one region and then see how it's reacting and then like go to the other region that okay. helps also mitigate any problems uh that might happen through the way Okay, that makes sense. So, like, if you're talking more about the developer experience, right? Uh, I want to, like, let's say uh, there is a new request from the product team, and you have to, uh, the developer has to work on adding a new feature. Uh, if it's a really minor feature, how do they go about that, right? Like, they'll write their code maybe in their local IDE. Where do they test it? Like, where do they run unit tests? How do they? How what does the CI/CD pipeline looks like? And are the changes to production automated? I know you said like it's really fast for a developer to get something from laptop to production, but I wanted to see what that process actually looks like. Yeah, uh, definitely I can speak to that. So when I mentioned earlier, like it's a 10 minute, I was yeah. more talking about like the onboarding experience for a new service. Okay. But it's not any serving any traffic when it's deployed to production. It's just like the domain is there, the service is ready, but there's no actual code. Yeah. You talk about like that, the life cycle in general, like, so we started with like engineers are mm -hmm. like testing their code locally, testing how the environment ships, all of the kind of stuff works. And then like, we do have developed like a couple things about making pull request environments. So mm -hmm. once you ship a pull request, you get like an environment on top of the platform okay. that like specifically shows you the changes that you have done and that, that built an image that built all of the necessary tools behind mm -hmm. the scene. And then once you get like the normal review cycle, like everything looks good, you ship it and depend on like some features are fully uh, like goes once you merge it, it's, it's really a preference on how teams work. Mm -hmm. uh, but like some feature when you merge it to main, it goes to like a life cycle of like, now I'm gonna do it on dev, uh, auto promotion to staging and do tests and then yeah. like continuous integration. Some other teams have to, 
you know, promoted manual. It, it really depends on the use cases. Okay. Uh, but yeah, like the life cycle is like you go from local to an environment that you test on. It's like similar to the environment that you have in. And then you go to your development, do more tests. And staging, staging is kind of more like that last environment before production yeah. where like you test actually everything. Okay. Uh, so we, and there are other things that we also have. So it really depends on the features, but like you could add smoke test, stress test, integration test with other features, depending on like if your feature or your service talking to many other internal uh, services in the company or things like that. So it really depends on the situation. Okay. And do you do any form of uh, production like tests, right? Like the amount of traffic that New York Times receives on all their different apps is at, at a different scale than what a developer usually thinks about. So is that involved somewhere? Like we were talking to last year, a company called SpeedScale that basically takes a dump of all the production data, the petabytes and petabytes of data. And then whenever you have your app in that staging environment, they actually test it against the production-like data to see if everything works as expected and then only they push it to production. Is that something that uh, uh, the Times does and you do at uh, that's not an area that I'm, I'm super familiar with, but I can tell you like there are some teams are, uh, might be using like canary releases okay. to test like a couple things, but there's one thing that I've been, uh, uh, seeing recently that we started because we are in a centralized place. Uh, we start to have features in our ingress. So we have like our, we built ingress for the platform that does yeah. the mirroring. So in uh -huh. that situation, we can like. Teams can decide, like, I want to mirror some of the traffic from production on a specific way and yeah. send it somewhere else to test, like, how is that going to look like? Uh, and they're always, you know, experimentation, depending yep. on, like, how you do it, uh, why, because, like, there's a lot of services have to play a role into, like, the deployment. But, yeah, I have seen uh, some stuff, but it's not an area where, like, I do a day-to-day -day operation. Okay. On. It's more like the uh, app teams where are more familiar with things like that. Gotcha. That makes sense. Uh, so like go, going back to what you are responsible for, right? Like maintaining the platform. How do you uh, design for or avoid single points of failures, right? Like a node can go down. There might be some outage between AZs or US East one once in a while might like give you a, a, a mini heart attack. <laughs> How do you plan for those events, right? And uh, like, can you talk about the resiliency that you have built in and is the developer responsible for doing that at the application layer or the platform is supposed to own that? Yeah, so uh, that's a really good question. And like, there are different points where like we talk about resiliency. Uh, one of them, so I'm going to give you a couple examples. Yep. One of the examples is like the ingress. So the ingress is built automatically to manage failover. So we built okay. it like deployed in multi-region capacity and your traffic is going already through a multi-region. If one region failed, even if you are deployed to a single region, yeah. your traffic goes to the complete other region and like get traversed over the internal network. So that avoids like we have a single place where like traffic will fall down. Uh, from other things like for Kubernetes, for example, we do have service mesh. Mm -hmm. So like clusters in the same environment in two different regions are already meshed together in a way uh, using Cilium, using Istio. So okay. like if you are deploying your service to multi-region perspective and like one of your region failed, the other region should automatically take over. And most of these, we are, most of these features we are trying to give to the engineers out of the box. Like we don't want to like, but we also have 
a lot of customizations that you can play in. Like you can say, uh, this is a weed that I want to send between. Maybe you are not in active-active situation, so you are an active-passive. Mm -hmm. uh, depend on like each team requirement. But like most of it, we are trying to think a lot more into like how to make how to take the best practices, implement them, and give all of the teams uh, the freedom and the ability to decide like what features they need to enable or disable or like okay. what is their specific requirement. But like we always think about this because, you know, like if, if you centralize the platform, you just want to make sure that it's resilient enough that it yeah. can uh, avoid any single point of failures. Yeah, and that makes sense, right? And I think that centralized team really helps with that because everybody doesn't have to build that logic inside the application layer and spend more time delivering a single feature. They can rely on platform being that resilient layer. Uh, but like you spoke about multi-region and an ingress or a load balancer, basically routing traffic based on the availability, right? How do you handle data? Like, I, I think I remember that you don't run data on Kubernetes, like you're not, you're leveraging other AWS services, but how does uh, active active, like is it active active in the first place? And how does it work cross region? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. So that's also one of the things that really we are in the early journey. So we are trying to, you know, like uh, uh, you are breathing a cluster. If you have volumes and you have all of that kind of stuff, it makes things more complicated. Like yeah. how you like back up all of this, how you restore them. Uh, and we are running like, uh, I think I mentioned earlier that we are running on like a spot mode as well for some yeah. instances so they can go out. Uh, so we are trying to use any managed storage that we can leverage to like have everything around. So like, let's say if, for example, like if we are using AWS uh, with, with EKS, like what other managed storage, like if you want to save a file, it's probably S3, that would yeah. be a better place. If you want to like a database, probably you would go to like uh, RDS, like just mm -hmm. like have it there. Like that, like that, Components about like how these are deployed might be different from an application to an application. In some use cases, you are just like deploying a file to an S3, so you can afford going from like our yep. West region, for example, to the yep. same S3. But there are other situations where like you are you have a very sensitive latency, so you may have let's say talk about cache. We're talking about Redis, so you may yeah. have like two distributed cache in each region and one can be a leader and one take over when okay. something happened. But like this is really dependent on the situation. I have seen databases where like they are multi-easy, multi-region yep. or like a global database where just your access endpoint depends on where you're coming from that will handle it automatically. I have seen like application decide that I always want to write to one region and like when a region uh, when there's a failure, there's automation to promote the other database somehow. So it's it's still like it's it's also depend on we offer the capabilities to just be like you can do like a single deployment you can do a multi region you can do a multi like we always all of our clusters are multi easies by default a yep. multi region so that solve a couple pieces of problems but then like you come to like a permanent storage or like persistent storage and then how this is handled it has a lot of different cases but we recommend going for manage tools Services. to help yeah to help with the whole process uh in general for your application gotcha and that makes sense so uh that that makes sense for like your infrastructure like requirements uh one question is like are these managed services part of your platform so when they are selecting like okay i need x amount of cpu memory resources and i need like an rds 
uh, or a DynamoDB instance? Do they request it as part of the platform? And then you have maybe like Terraform or CloudFormation on the back end that's actually spinning these up and giving those endpoints to the dev- developers? Yeah, this is a plan. So currently, like there are a couple of these that might be like have a modules that spins them up. But like yeah. the plan in general is to be able also to provide like less options. Like if I know already where is your traffic coming from, I should know like what security group that be applied, all of the kind of data and what's IAM role. Uh, we should like so for now, for example couple things that we do like when you deploy an application to uh eks for example we give you the ecr like mm-hmm. terraform built yep. for it we give you the ursa or the a service account like i am service account uh for your role and we give you the terraform for it built already and deployed so nice. there are other conversations and discussions about like what else could be an s3 yep. could be a dynamo table could be something else and you just have to choose an option uh so i think like that would be like more stuff that comes in and makes the process even easier uh, from a developer experience perspective. I think that's awesome, right? And uh, that's the key thing with a centralized platform team. You have to treat it as like an ever-evolving thing. It's not that, oh, I have some automation and then I can call it a day and work on something else. No, it it is about continuously improving the platform uh, and making sure developers are using it. Like if, if you don't evolve it, they'll be like, okay, this is I can use the platform only for one specific niche use case, but everything else I have to do it on my own. Uh, so I like that approach of it's always going to be uh, there are always going to be new features to it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mentioned uh, uh, funny enough that one of my last talk I was talking yeah. about like was the lesson learned, and I was like yeah. uh, having like platform engineering is not a project; it's a product. Yeah. Like yep. and it it has to be iteratively, and you have to listen to customers. So it's not like a one thing. Similar, exactly like what you're saying. Like it's not one thing that you're gonna do it yeah. and then hey, it's done. It's just like it's a it's a very many iterations that you have to go through to get to the point where like now it's working. Now what's next and yep. all of the kind of stuff. Okay, so uh, you you listed like you already brought up best practices right from your own learnings. Uh, we have listeners to to the podcast that are in all stages, right? There are organizations that are really matured right along with you and innovating on this front, but there are still organizations that are getting started or development teams that are getting started. Can you share some of your best practices or lessons learned so that people don't repeat them uh, with with our listeners? Yeah, uh, of course. So like, as I'm describing our journey and I talked about this, whatever I'm describing here is what worked for us. So yeah. there is no one size fits all. Like I have seen other people like using uh, cluster as a service, for example, yeah. or namespace as a service. Like we like, first of all, you have to look into like, what is the need inside the organization? Like, what are you building for? Like one thing that I have seen is that, Oh, we are engineers. So like we tend to like, hey, I want to build a shiny thing. I want to build something that like yeah. I want to code about. But like it's at the end of the day, is like if you have a platform without adoption, like it's it's not a success. It's yep. just like you are the mission is like to build something that helps others. So if it's not, uh that is not like really the goal that you are aiming for. The other thing is like Super critical is like building. If you're building a product, building a platform, building anything, you should have like a great documentation. Yep. Documentation is is a key on like how to do things. Like even if you don't have the right automation to do things, like maybe building the simplest documentation that a user can understand makes a problem easier. Like if yep. they follow one, two, three steps, that would be another thing uh, to go through. And like you would also avoid like being in a support mode where like. 
you build something, it's working, but there are hundreds of use cases that people may go through. And then instead of like going through a documentation and people read about like, oh, this is how I fix it, uh, they have to go ask. And then like you get into a situation where like you getting dragged into the support yep. mentality uh, for your platform. The last thing, which is super important, is feedback. Like mm -hmm. customer feedback is like, has to be like iteratively, like every... I know if you can do it every day, I'll, I'll go for it. Right? This would be an overkill. <laughs> but like in general, like you build a feature, you need to get like, feedback. You need to get like a uh, champion about it. You need to see what really people want. Like it might be like conflicting with what are you trying to do, but like mm -hmm. this is where there's a value on like building that. So if, if you think like we should go this way, but everyone else, think like if you build that that would be helpful you should start think about and listen to customers about what's really necessary there are smaller things that uh smaller automations that could make it easier like uh, one thing that i've been i've been seeing uh for example and this is a personal experience to me okay like i know how to like deploy an app for example like yep. in and out like people working on a platform know how to do things then like you get it for granted that you think like it's an easy and exp like self-explained to other people. And then like you get into this problem, like it's super easy, but like, yeah, I, I'm not saying it's not, it's easy because that's your day to day. But yeah. when someone else come to try to use your tool, they don't necessarily know your tool. So like, if you don't give them the right approaches and the right documentation, they gonna just like feel like, oh, there's something missing. And then like smaller automation pieces and smaller bits, can make the entire process easier. So instead of telling someone, hey, here's a list of 10 things, uh, you could give them like, a, maybe if you don't have automation, you could give them maybe a small batch script yeah. that does these 10 things, makes the process easier. So that would eliminate like user error, eliminate anything like that. Okay, no, I think those are the useful tips. We'll I'll, I'll make sure that I summarize those in, in the key takeaways section at the end of the episode. Um, so like with Kubernetes Bytes, right? If you listen to any of the 2023 episodes, you'll see that we started a new question at the end. Like we we asked people like, uh, uh, we asked a question to chat GPT and got a response from it. And we asked the same question to our guest. And it was a funny question at the end, just a way to involve more AI. Uh, 2024, right? This is season four for us. Uh, what we are thinking is instead of doing that gimmicky bit, like actually ask, what are you doing with AI? Like how is AI impacting your day-to-day? -day? How are you planning on incorporating AI into your existing product or platform? Any of these things, like how are you thinking about AI today, Amar? Yeah. Uh, so let me answer the, the question like in two parts, like yeah. part as an organization and part as separately, uh, uh, personally. So mm -hmm. As an organization, I think like it's important to like look into AI and machine learning. And uh, there, I know there are other folks like are looking at this area, but like there are stuff that we shared already. So like for example, like if you go to open.nytimes.com, like we do have our uh, open blog, and mm -hmm. like you're gonna find articles about like for example, like how our cooking teams are using uh, machine learning to like do personalized stuff. Uh, you can read about like other things. So. I don't think like it's something that we are not familiar with. Like yeah. I, other teams, we do have like machine learning teams in the organization uh, that specifically do things with models, with data and a lot of things. It's not my area of expertise to dive more, yeah. uh, but like we do have, we do have the capabilities and the folks who are looking at something like that. So before you go into the personal bit, right? 
so are 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 you thinking about like long term right as part of this ever evolving platform supporting something like a cube flow or a, or an ml flow or some some other model orchestration thing on top of kubernetes and maybe extending your customer ba- customer or user base to even data scientists and not just developers is that going to happen uh i believe that is a vision that per- like personally i have in my mind like okay. right now like we are working with like services and like abis and all of the kind of stuff but there's another aspect of like how you do a lot of other things on on kubernetes like how you do uh, data batching how you do data streaming how you yeah. do machine learning how you provide like as we provide like a simple way of uh, doing uh services and deployment can we provide a simpler way i have seen examples on like jupiter as a service yeah where, like you can just like hey i need i need a quick thing to do yeah. yeah a notebook yeah. and uh other things like i need to batch something i need a batch job that does stuff so it, it's it's completely on top of my head like how we can evolve into this area but, like we also have data teams and like machine mm-hmm. learning teams that we have to work with and orchestrate like how something like this works uh that like, was one of the benefits that I, that I've seen like in, in other reinvent talks is like the running Jupyter uh, Kubeflow or any other Jupyter Lab notebook on EKS and combining combining it with the power of Carpenter. Whenever you actually w- you want to execute your notebook, that's when Carpenter will spin up those additional GPU nodes. Once the job is done, it automatically spins it now. I was like, wow, that's awesome and i i i brought this up in in our last episode as well but i love the move from aws about open sourcing carpenter so it's not just restricted to aws now like you can use it with other cloud providers obviously that will need some more some more work but that option is out there right so if you're building with carpenter that's a great tool uh, which is now available uh, to the open source audience exactly and and you 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 really nailed it like i was i was really uh impressed by like how they thought about it and then like i started recently i think i saw a provider for carpenter and aks okay. which is Azure. so nice. like it does it does the same logic because the logic itself is is really help with like scaling also yep. we have seen like uh i think a couple of my colleagues did a talk about like how are we using carpenter in kubecon and the last kubecon and like the idea on like things that like, spike fast or all of the kind of stuff Carpenter is fully capable of that. So in the future, I'm uh, like if I if I imagine like how I would see the platform from my personal experience or from my personal vision, I would see like why we don't have data, why we don't have yeah. other things. Uh, but it's 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 more of a priority. What really helps the organization and how yeah. we can help the teams building what they need. Gotcha, makes sense. And let's go back to the second half of the AI question, right? Like, how are you do using it uh, on your own, like on, on your personal time? Yeah, I, I'll tell you, like, it's it's super helpful. Like, when it started, like, I was a little bit skeptical about, like, uh, all of the kind of stuff. But, like, I think, like, there is a lot of benefits of, like, not really, like, offloading things to it, but, like, being more productive. So, like, uh, for I'm going to tell you a simple example. Like, I want to share something. I want a nice image to share about what I'm doing. Like, yeah. instead of me setting and designing, it's not my area. Of, like, I, I know how I write a content, but like, yeah. I may not know how to create an image that's so beautiful. So like, I would prompt an AI to like build an image for me and then, I, then it's done. But there are other things. Like, if if it's doing like, if there's an automation, it's like, when I think about it, it's more of like, it's a tool to help me do my job better. Like. I would ask, like, one of the things I would ask is, like, 
I'm an engineer, but like, do I remember every single code bet in my head? No, like I understand what I'm doing and I'm going to do it in a way that I think like it's architecturally correct, like logically correct, all of the kind of stuff. But what if I can have, if if there's a repetitive task or if there's something that I didn't see before, something that can go and do all of the searching behind the scene and get me the answers that, I still have to apply or I still have to look into. Uh, so personally, I find a lot of value. So like uh, there's a KTS GBT, yep. where like it's a CLI, which like it's super helpful to debug things. Uh, I didn't get a chance to like use it in, in work, but I'm using it personally uh, to just play with and yeah, use uh, Other things like that. But I, I would see a value on, on like going for more a structured way. Like if you ask me like, what I would like is just like uh, a part where like in, in AI would like, as an engineer, I would come and say, hey, I want to build a service. So like it would ask me a couple of questions and based on specific answers, it will start like, you know, tailor my experience to like, mm-hmm. oh, now you need a public. Now you need that. Now you need that. And then like give me a template that I can start working on. Yeah. That's not a bad thing. Or when, when the logs, when I have one of my services not working correctly and I can just like, pass an error message and, or it'll just like have yeah. some diagnostic collected together and like aggregated in a way that it's more human. I, I believe this is a good way. So I think yeah. we are going in the right track, in my opinion, on in general, oh, we, as an industry, how to yeah. go for it. Yeah, we, we sure are, right? Like uh, one of our previous uh, guests on the episode uh, runs a company called uh, RunWen. They have okay. a local tool called RunWen Local. Um, and it does what you just said about troubleshooting. Like they have these AI, AI assistant personas that are specifically trained on how you troubleshoot Postgres or how you troubleshoot Redis. Uh, you just point it to them and they'll run a bunch of commands and then identify the issue for you. So like you are, you're not spending four hours troubleshooting something, you're spending 15 minutes figuring out, okay, this is the issue. How do I solve that specific issue? So yeah. uh, check that out. Uh, add it to your list of tools in, in addition oh, yeah. to Kubernetes GPT. I am. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Okay. So that brings us to the last question. I know you already said open.newyorktimes.com, but where can people connect with you uh, with your team's journey, what new innovative things you're working on? How do you how do people get in touch with you if they have more questions? Share any and all links that you might have. Yeah, so open the NY Times. That's where like we share uh, all of our blogs and the amazing work that we are doing in the organization. We also mm-hmm. on GitHub, GitHub uh, slash uh, NY Times, where like you can see all of the open source tools that we have. Personally, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. Uh, I can just uh, give you a link from my profile, and people reach out to you. And, uh, to yeah, I'll include that or, in our show notes. Yeah. Or, or my email and like happy to uh, help and talk about uh, anything that we have done and presented and like even like not just like help, but like I would love people also to reach out and say, we did our journey differently. Yeah. And I learned from them on like what worked for them and how, how we can like collaborate with each other. I think that's yeah. the power of community at the end of the day. Oh yeah, that's that's the perfect way to end the episode. Thank you so much, Ahmad, for joining us for this this Kubernetes Bytes podcast recording, first of the new year and first of season four. Uh, we love to have you back once you include AI ML as part of your platform. Uh, so uh, if you do any talks in the future, you will make I'll make sure that I watch those and reach back out to you. Uh, but yeah, thank you, thank you so much for joining us today. Of course, thanks for having me, and like we'll we'll be back one day. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Okay, uh, that was a great episode. Uh, 
again, th- thank you, Ahmed, for joining us. But uh, I would like to quickly summarize what, what we discussed in the episode or at least have a few key takeaways as Ryan and I usually do. Uh, so to start with, the first one being uh, plat- treat platform engineering as a product and not uh, a process like uh, or not a one-time thing. Uh, as a product, it has to be iterative, right? So you keep building the platform better, like better with every release to make sure you're serving your users better or maybe even adding more users to your platform. Uh, this is something I was thinking about, right? Like I know uh, Facebook or Meta and Instagram and all of these SaaS companies, even Salesforce for that matter, uh, when they do their earnings report, they list out their daily active users or DAO or monthly active users or MAO, I guess, uh, to show the the adoption of their platform or the usage of their application. I think... Uh, with platform engineering, that's something that we should be doing, right? Like if you are responsible for building a platform inside your organization, make sure that you are measuring somehow and making your product better such that like you are getting more and more users onboarded. Uh, I think uh, Spotify, everybody knows they, they were the they, they were the vendors behind uh, a backstage project and internally they use uh, backstage as well. Uh, last year, I was surprised that they have like 96% utilization from their engineering team for backstage. So like 96% of Spotify developers actually use backstage as their IDP to perform tasks and, and build their pipelines and uh, release code to production. So if you are doing uh, going on this platform engineering journey, you make sure that you are treating your platform or an IDP as, as a product instead of uh, just a feature or a one-time deliverable. Uh, next key takeaway that I had from Ahmed's uh, conversation was uh, documentation, right? Documentation is the key, as he said. Uh, even if sometimes you don't have automation for the entire pipeline or entire process, having documentation to fill those gaps, having, maybe having those shell commands uh, written down in a in a, a wiki, internal wiki or an internal Slack or a Confluence page somewhere would help users, right? Uh, it, it's It's behind the thought process. Like if I'm doing something over and over again, it might make sense to me, but uh, for my teammate or for a user in the same organization who's like three teams away from me, uh, they might not understand or they might not uh, know the entire process like I do. So documenting it uh, is definitely a better solution to make sure that uh, your users have an easier time adopting the platform. Uh, and then finally, uh, feedback. Like uh, as I much said, feedback, gathering periodic feedback is absolutely essential it helps you make sure that your features are built for the right audience if not you can tweak those and you should also take this feedback uh, to to define what your roadmap looks like right as again roadmap because we're thinking about in our internal developer platforms as a product so think about gathering feedback maybe having uh, a process in place where you have maybe a survey monkey page or maybe you have uh, quarterly meetings i know inside actual product teams they do like customer technical advisory boards right every quarter or every once every six months to share the roadmap maybe gather some feedback or talk about issues their users might be having maybe think about implementing some of that as part of your internal organization to to improve your idps but yeah i think that those were all the things that caught my eye uh, if i missed something that you feel was a key takeaway hit me up on slack uh, hit me up on linkedin or twitter uh, on my account or the kubernetes bytes account uh, but with that i think that brings us to the end of uh, today's episode um, please join our uh, slack channel the way to find it or the way to find the link to join our slack group is 
just go to our website kubernetesbytes.com uh, subscribe to our youtube channel and please 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 leave us good reviews five star reviews or at least some reviews uh, on your wherever you listen to your podcast right like apple podcast spotify google podcast anywhere uh, it helps us it helps us use those algorithms to make sure we reach more audience uh, again we are in 2024 right as part of one of my personal uh, growth resolutions or growth goals is make sure we imp- increase the audience from what it is today and take it to the next level so uh, anything you can do to help us would be great um, uh, like ryan will be back uh, in future episodes uh, and we'll continue doing this podcast so uh, without further ado uh, that brings us to the end of today's episode i'm Pavin, and thanks for joining another episode of the kubernetes bites podcast Thank you for listening to the Kubernetes Bytes podcast. 